Thank you. It's a, it's a privilege and an honor uh, to be able to share this. I, I thank uh, Rob and um, the elders for the invitation to be able to preach. Uh, this is what I have done, uh, had done for 22 years of my life. And um, as I was saying to Rob at the break, between the services, it's really kind of nice to have months and months to prepare a sermon as opposed to <laughs> six days. Um, but uh, if anybody's heart goes out to a, a pastor in their role, it's certainly mine. Um, been there. And um, it's been four years that I've been at Trinity Christian Academy. Uh, my kids have been there for eight years. Uh, we moved to the Cape in 2015. We arrived on Cape Cod, on the shores of Cape Cod, by way of Vienna, Austria, where we were for two years. Uh, we got to Vienna, Austria, by way of the long way Malawi, where we were for two years. And uh, prior to that, my wife and I grew up in Framingham, Sudbury. So we are Massachusetts natives, um, but uh, we are proud to call the Cape our home, and uh, we're proud to call uh, OBC our church home. So it's, it, we're grateful to be here and to be part of this amazing story that God is telling, as we've been hearing about now for some months uh, here at, at, at OBC. So if you just join me in a word of prayer, I'd like to just open this time and avail it to the Lord. Father, we, uh, we just want to come before you in, in the name of Jesus, and as we have begun in a, in a heart of worship, we ask, Lord, that uh, we would be open and receptive to what your Spirit wants to say and do uh, in this place, uh, that our hearts would be wide open, Lord, and our arms as well to receive what you have for each one of us. Lord, I would ask that you would uh, use this broken vessel as you would to transmit and, and to convey the power and the majesty and the glory of your truth and your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would meet us here and strengthen us, Lord, to, uh, to take your word and be not just hearers of it, uh, but doers as well. As we pray these things all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So uh, I would make the assumption, I think it's a safe assumption, that uh, those of us that are here or listening uh, to this message online are here because of some sort of a relationship, some sort of a response that we've had uh, to a message we call the good news. We've interacted with it at some point. Uh, here at OBC, we've been challenged uh, recent, in recent months to reflect on the story of how God has used this church and has used that gospel message story, that, that good news story in the history, 200-year history of the church, as well as what God is going to be doing in the decades to come. Of course, we connect that phrase, good news and gospel. We use it interchangeably. But for our time together here this morning, I'd just like us on this dawn of a new year to just spend some time thinking about what does that actually mean? When we talk about the good news, when we talk about the gospel, what is that that is our common bond, that is our common thread together as sons and daughters of Jesus? How do we actually understand that in such a way that we can convey it clearly and concisely? Under uh, the website, uh, the, the church website on, on Rob's intro page, one of the first things he says in his intro paragraph is, I am committed to the gospel. Well, before my family ever ventured out into looking uh, for a church home here in the Cape, uh, that's one of the landing sites I like to go to is, what is this church about? And uh, what a great delight to read one of the first sentences of, of your pastor to say, I'm committed to the gospel. Uh, there's another page on the website that's under why we exist, went there soon after. And, uh, and I read this statement. We are a church that preaches and celebrates the good news of Jesus. So my question for us to consider uh, this morning during this gospel message is this. What is the gospel? 
If someone were to give you a business card, okay, you're limited to this much space, and say, here, on the back of this business card, I'd like you to write out the gospel for, gospel for me. I'd like to go and consider it. Uh, just, just write it for me. You, you, and you couldn't say, Can, do you have nine more of these? Okay, J- Just on this one card. What would you write and what would you say? And this is the urgency b- behind this question. I-, I think that if we have trouble articulating it clearly and succinctly, um, really we'd have to ask the question, what hope do we have in transmitting it to others? We can say, well, I, I-, I go to a church that that loves the gospel, and I, I sit under the teaching of a, of a pastor who's, who's passionate about the good news. Great. Well, what is that exactly? I'm under the suspicion that our collective inability to concisely define the gospel um, leads to an ambiguity not only in our, ability, our inability to share it with others, but also in our ability to even fully grasp the weight of it ourselves. To listen to many uh, that are asked to define what the gospel is, the, 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 the phrasing that we tend to hear many times is this. Well, if you accept Jesus as your Savior, then you're going to be saved from the penalty of sin, and then you'll go to heaven instead of hell when you die. That fits on the back of a business card, no problem. But unintentionally, that type of gospel understanding creates at least, at least three problems. First of all, A gospel that says, if I accept Jesus as my Savior, uh, I'm going to be saved from the penalty of sin, I'm going to go to heaven instead of hell, it unintentionally equates the gospel as simply a ticket uh, to get out of hell. Sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card. Second, when it comes to the problems and struggles of life, the difficulties, the challenges that we all face, it's tragically led many to turn to the world to find solutions to their problems because, after all, salvation is something that isn't realized until after death. And thirdly, it puts the authority for our salvation in our hands as if it's something we accomplish on our own. Now, again, I'll I'll revisit that phrase. If I accept Jesus as my Savior, I'll be saved from the penalty of sin, and I'll go to heaven instead of hell when I die. There's nothing untrue about that statement. But to call it the synopsis of the gospel is, I believe, something that misses the heart of what the gospel message is really all about. If I just say the right things, or if I just believe the right things, then I will have understood this gospel message. And yet, to take a serious look into the gospels themselves, into Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and and see the unfolding work and ministry of Jesus, and all that he said, and all that he did, and all in the ways he conveyed the gospel message and lived it out, you'll see that the challengers against that gospel message, against God, and against God's plan, were exactly those people who thought of God's plan as being strictly defined by good moral character, undergirded by good doctrine. Now, make no mistake, good morals and good doctrine are good things to have, okay? I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not uh, dispelling that at all or, or, or undermining that. But the problem is this. If we assume that by good morals, by good character, and by having a good doctrinal statement attached to our lives, we've understood the true gospel, we've actually missed it. We've actually missed it. So again, I ask, what is the true gospel? What's at the heart of it? What's at the core? I mean, how many times have we had conversations with people who maybe have grown up in the church or maybe not, 
but still assume, listen, at the end of the day, my good has to outweigh my bad, and that's it. I just got to do more good than bad. And, and to ask the great question that Andy Stanley asked many years ago, how good is good enough? How are you going to know? If that's the understanding of the gospel message, how are you going to know? Is it just John 3.16? Is it the Romans road? Is it uh, summarized in a verse or a passage better than another? Communicated through a gospel tract? If we say that the gospel is about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, are we leaving out too many important factors such as sanctification or uh, joining a church, reading the Bible, baptism, confirmation, uh, feeling a, a sense of repentance about our sin, accepting Jesus, praying the sinner's prayer? I mean, how does that all work in? The gospel is not some mind trick or spiritual philosophy somebody tells us about that we just give mental assent to and then go on about our lives. It's got to be more than that. How is the good news both an ancient historical event and also an everyday practical reality? It seems important that we understand and talk about the gospel in such a way as it demonstrates an ongoing day in and day out control over, yes, our lives, but also over all of our decisions as well. How radical is this message? So this morning, I'd like us to just spend some time uh, in, in uh, Luke chapter 23, uh, thinking about this question, what is the gospel? And I'd like us to think about this passage of scripture, considering the heart of the gospel message from a very familiar gospel account. Luke 23, starting at verse 32, this is right as Jesus is on the cross. These are the events that unfolded as he is there. The Son of God made flesh for you and me that we all just celebrated in our Christmas celebrations. God with us has come, has been rejected, has been reviled, has been tortured, has been sent to that cross, and is hanging there. And these are some of the events that took place. Luke 23, starting at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly, for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but in my life experience, this particular story within this larger story 
has been treated somewhat as a side note. It's been sort of a, a, a parenthetical insertion that uh, doesn't take away from the main story, but doesn't necessarily add much to it as well. And, and I've really been spending a, a good chunk of, of, of 2023 wrestling with this particular passage of Scripture, and in particular, the, these two gentlemen on either side of, and that's a generous statement to call them gentlemen, uh, knowing their past and their background, on either side of Jesus. I mean, to think of those who had the f- literal front row seat to our salvation experience, these two criminals. And upon further reflection, I find this to be more than just a, a parenthetical insertion into the gospel story. Here in the middle of the climax of the account of the crucifixion of our Lord, something that some have called the greatest story ever told, here at the epicenter of all of God's plan for redemption, foretold so many years before in a garden called Eden, here at the climactic moment of the salvation of mankind is what feels like a, a brief diversion to tell, to tell a story about two other guys, but I don't think it's a side story or a diversion at all. No, in fact, here in these brief minutes before the Savior of all mankind breathes his last, he hangs in agony between two people who, unbeknownst to them, represent the only two options that exist when it comes to the spiritual state of all of humanity. That's what I see happening in this this moment. This is not some just sort of P.S. by the way, and this was also happening too. Here, embodied in these two criminals on the cross, both guilty, both hanging there, both under the same sentence as Jesus himself, we see more going on. Because with Jesus there in the middle and a man on either side, they, like us, are faced with a choice. And these two are, in fact, the only two options that exist when it comes to the spiritual state of all of us. So what are these options? The first, well, the first, he hurled insults, it says. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Interesting line. What he was really saying was, you're a joke, and if you're not, you'd get me out of this mess. If you were really who you said you were, my life wouldn't be unfolding this way. You ever hear anybody say something similar to that? I have. Listen, this God that you say you believe in, if he were really real, he would never have allowed the things that have happened to me in my life. If this God that you claim as being omnipotent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all these attributes that you claim to this being, If that were really so, why would things be going on when I turn on the news that I'm seeing going on? Why would this world be falling apart the way that it is? Aren't you the Christ? Well, then do something about it. Fix my situation. I mean, who is God or who is the divine? He's the one who exists to fix my problems and straighten out my injustices. 
And who was that man on that middle cross? That one with the nail through each hand and through his feet. Who, who is this one? Who could at a moment's notice call down a legion of angels and have that whole situation reversed? Who, who is this guy? Who would utter those words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel writer Luke defines this as hurling insults. Just insulting this Jesus. You're not who I expected you to be. You're not following through on my plans for my life. Fix the situation if you are who you say you are. Well, now let's consider the second criminal's response. And this is really important because if we're not thoughtful and, 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 and taking some time to really think about it, the second criminal could also uh, could easily come across or, or represent really kind of the lowest bar or, or minimum requirements uh, to meet in order to make it to heaven. And I've actually heard it kind of presented that way before. Well, listen, even the, even the thief on the cross made it in. So, I mean, how much could God really be expecting of us? I mean, if he, even he makes it, we're probably doing pretty well. But upon closer inspection, I, I think by his own testimony, we're going to see that that criminal's heart and the core of the gospel message are really made clear. As brief as this conversation is, I think what we're going to see is that it still contains all the critical elements necessary for the understanding, the apprehension of this gospel message. Where did he start? Well, he starts here. He starts with the fact that he feared God and he acted on it. He feared God and he acted on it. As a matter of fact, the first thing he said is not to Jesus at all. He looks past Jesus to the other thief on the cross and says to him, don't you fear God? The first words this man utters, don't you fear God? What a strange thing to say. For whatever this person knew or didn't know, and regardless of when he started to pay attention to it, this man had a fear of God, and he wasn't ashamed to stand up for it. We know it wasn't just the three individuals there. We know there was, a, there was Roman soldiers standing there. We also know there were bystanders standing there. The whole point of the place of crucifixion was to be a public spectacle. And this man made a public declaration, and it was this simple. Don't you fear God? And by implication saying, I do. How many have come to faith in Jesus but never truly done business with the sinfulness that they're struggling with? And how does that sinfulness not start with an understanding that we need to have a healthy fear of God. The scriptures are very clear on this. Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job 28, 28. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. What is real wisdom in this world? God says it starts quite simply. You fear 
me. So is this, is this thief on the cross taking some sort of a, a shortcut into heaven? I would argue no. He begins the journey like we all do with a healthy fear of the Lord. He begins his journey by joining together the recognition that there is a God with the reality that we're not him. And the Bible says, now you're on the path to wisdom. You're not there yet, but you're on the right road. Second, what did this gentleman do? He owned his own sinfulness. And this is a, this is a major point. And if you're not looking carefully, you could miss it. But did you see what he said there in verse 41? He says, we're getting what we deserve. That's a powerful statement. That this individual would hang there and say, we are punished justly for what we are getting is deserved. But this man has done nothing wrong. There's a lot there. The admission and the ownership of his own sinfulness. Owning it. Not mistakes. Not I messed up. I'm a head of school. I talk to young people all the time. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I'd love to have a poster in my office that just has a picture of a kid doing this. <laughs> I didn't do anything. Before God, before a God who knows, we know that's not right. Before the Apostle Paul goes anywhere and laying out his understanding of the gospel, in the book of Romans, he begins with the foundational understanding in chapter 3. I actually heard somebody give a synopsis of how they feel like the book of Romans unfold, unfolds. Romans chapter 1, the Gentiles are far from God and they've missed it. Romans chapter 2, the Jews are far from God and they missed it. Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Who is righteous? Not one. Not one. And, and, and there's the scandal. As we begin to walk this path of wisdom, we come to this scandal that is me. It is my sin. I love the, the, the uh, behind-the-scenes uh, uh, stories that have come out over the years, over the making of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, and his cameo in that movie. Uh, most people watching that movie never understood that, uh, you know, Mel Gibson's face n never appears on the screen, but he is in the movie. He did request one particular scene that he be in. It's Mel Gibson's hand holding the nail and the hammer that goes through the hand of Jesus, as if to say, I put him there. He hung there for love of me. That's the personalizing of the message, to say he has done nothing wrong, but I deserve this. You get nowhere in the good news story until you embrace your need for it. Thirdly and finally here, he surrendered his future into the hands of Jesus, and this is beautiful. He just simply turns to him and says, listen, and you could extrapolate from this paraphrase and say, listen, I don't know where you're going, but remember me when you get there. Remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus. 
Wherever you're going, that's where I want to be. Whatever your future is, whatever that looks like, count me in. One thief demanded, rescue me. The other simply said, remember me. Jesus, would you remember me? I have a fear of God. I have an ownership of my sinfulness. And I place myself at your mercy. Remember me. No, this man was not squeaking into heaven by some kind of discount plan. I would submit that there can be no true acknowledgement of the gospel apart from the wisdom that comes from a heartfelt fear of the Lord, the repentance that can come only from a true acceptance of one's guilt before a holy and righteous God, and a falling on the mercy and grace of Jesus demonstrated on the cross. Isn't this why the Apostle Paul could write those words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2? And he simply says to the church in Corinth, listen, when I was among you, I knew nothing but Christ and him crucified. And this is Paul. This is the individual who, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote Romans chapter 5. I mean, what? The, uh, the, 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 the forensic uh, uh, legalities behind the uh, unfolding of the gospel message and from an eternal perspective. And he would actually come and say, listen, when I was with you, all I could talk about was this simple thing, Jesus and him crucified. That's why Paul would write to a, a church in Philippi and make the statement, everything that was to my gain, it was, it's rubbish. And I'll brag just for a second here, I got an incredible resume. Garbage compared to this, the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And that's it. Could it be that simple? Could it be that straightforward? One thing is clear, though. Whatever it is, it can't be me. It can't be because I believed. It can't be because I figured out. It can't be because I come from a lineage that, dot, dot, dot. It can't be me. Somehow, in my understanding, in my grasp, of the message of the gospel of Jesus, it has to come down to the cross of Christ. I have known nothing when I was among you except Christ and him crucified. A while back, I was, uh, through circumstances that God ordained, as I'm wrestling through this passage of scripture, just even in my own heart, my own quiet time, uh, I came across this video of <clears throat> one of my favorite preachers, uh, Alistair Begg. I don't know how many of you know Alistair Begg. I love Alistair Begg because Alistair Begg knows the word of God. Alistair Begg is a great preacher, and he does it all in a Scottish brogue, which makes everything sound a little bit more elevated and just a little bit truthier. I don't know. <clears throat> but what I loved about that, this, this clip that I'm going to show you here... <clears throat> What I loved about it is the fact that 
what he's wrestling with and what he's unfolding is the exact same thing. And he's saying, listen, if we don't understand and if we don't understand this gospel message and actually learn what it means to preach it to ourselves, we'll begin to drift away from the heart of the gospel message and we'll pile on all of this preferential stuff that, that we just want to pile onto it. But at the center of it, at the core of it, is the cross. And it's not what we've done. It's what Jesus has done. Let's watch this together. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old uh, Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and, and, and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believed, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing. Loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person, because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. And what an immense, I can't, I, I can't wait to find that fellow one day to ask him, how did that shake out for you? Because you were, you were, you were, you were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You, never, you didn't know a thing about church membership. And, and, yet, and yet, you made it. You made it. How did you make it? That's what the angel must have said, you know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What, what do you mean you don't know? Well, because like, I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor ranger. So we just a few questions for you. First of all, are you, are, you, are, you, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? <laughs> the guy said, I've never heard of it in my life. And, and what about, uh, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. This guy's just staring. And eventually in frustration, he says, on, on what basis are you here? And he said, the man on the middle cross said, I can come. <laughs> now, now, that's the, that is the only answer. That is the only answer. And this is the importance of what it means to preach the gospel uh, to ourselves. To preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day. To reaffirm the fact that we are not drifting far away from its core. The core of the gospel message, the core of the good news that we are there simply because that the love of God displayed for us in Jesus Christ said we are welcome, that we are forgiven, that we are made new, that we are new creations in Christ Jesus. Preaching the gospel to ourselves is about reminding ourselves day by day, even moment by moment throughout the day, to remain all of our lives at the foot of the cross of Jesus and to continually, to continually experience afresh his forgiveness and his cleansing and his empowerment and his purpose for our lives. 
and to, to, to speak that over us. And that when we wake up in the morning, we would remind ourselves to say, listen, it, it, it's not about my spiritual resume. It's not about my faithful church attendance. It's not about my knowledge of Bible trivia. It's not about any of those things or those, those, those resume uh, 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 gold stars that I have. It's about who Jesus is and what he's done for me. It's about preaching the gospel to ourselves. But, but wait, some might say, isn't talking to yourself a sign of I'm probably losing it here? I mean, that, what, what is that all about? I love what the great uh, preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones once said. He said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? There's a great deal of wisdom in that phrase, I believe. You know, we listen to ourselves and we play the tapes and we repeat how unworthy we are and we repeat how unlikely uh, I am to be qualified for and we repeat how uh, beyond the, the, the grace of God I must have wandered and we repeat these things and we repeat these things and we listen to ourselves and what we're called to is to speak to ourselves and to speak the truth that in Jesus Christ, God's great love for me has been demonstrated supremely on that cross. And that I'm going to preach that to myself. And when I get out of bed in the morning, it's going to be what I remind myself of. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Christ has done for me. If you're not talking to yourself about yourself, uh, that's not what you need to be doing. You don't need to be talking to yourself about yourself. That's called self-help. And it's a never-ending hamster wheel that you'll never get off of. No, it's not you talking to yourself about yourself, about your problems, about repeating uh, your life solution mantras that were given to you by Tony Robbins or Dr. Phil or whoever. You're, t- you're taking yourself again and again to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. And you, say, and you can say, for all of the, 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 the darkness of this world, for all of the difficulties that I'm facing, for all of the challenges, for all of the heartache, for all the hardship that I've had to endure, I have a Savior who loved me, became one of me, walked a perfect life, <clears throat> and gave it for me on that cross that I might know him. He knows suffering. He knows pain. He knows rejection. There's nothing you'll ever experience in this life. Scripture says we don't have a Savior who's unfamiliar with our sufferings. We have one who has in every way been tempted as we are. You're taking yourself again and again to the foot of the cross. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. That's the core of the message of the gospel, that everything I am not, he became, and that everything that I'm guilty of, he bore. Tim Keller famously said, other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to him. But the gospel says, This is what has been done for you. This is how Jesus lived and how he died and how God has earned the way for you. Christianity is completely different. It is truly joyful news. The truth of the matter is that we will all stand before him one day. I don't know how often we talk about that. 
but it's true. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. I think this is something we should talk about more. God's not keeping it a secret. I don't, I don't see any loopholes written in here. All means all. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And yet, throughout Scripture, it prepares us for that time, does it not? And the gospel message is the theme that runs through that preparation. See, my Bible tells me that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. Praise God. My Bible tells me in, in Psalm 103, verse 12, that as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Jeremiah 31, 34. God speaks over his people saying, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The fact of the matter is your sin, as with all sin, will be paid for. That's not negotiable. The only thing that's negotiable is who pays. Either you pay for it or you'll let him. For we must all stand before God's judgment seat, Romans 14. Verse 10. So I'm going to just close with this, if I may humbly give you some lawyerly advice and coaching as you prepare for your big day in court. Beforehand, prepare. Prepare for your day when you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ by preaching the gospel of the cross of Christ to yourself every day. Make a pledge here on this dawn of a new year. I will remind myself on a regular, ongoing, daily basis that but for the grace of God displayed in the cross of Jesus Christ, there go I. I dare not put my feet on the floor in the morning and my eyes open to a new day without understanding and reaffirming that truth. But for God's grace displayed on that cross, go I. <clears throat> Next... <clears throat> When that day comes for you to stand before the judge of judges, if that question were to be asked, on what grounds are you permitted here? Politely gesture toward Jesus himself and say, because he loved me and because he said I could come. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, we are in awe of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. And we want to conclude uh, our time together here this morning by just saying thank you for the cross. For all that we understand and all that we don't understand at the end of the day, we cry out from our hearts, Jesus, remember us, remember me. Knowing that that's exactly why he was there because of my sin. Because of my sin, 
that he bore with those nails, with those scars, those wounds, with that crown of thorns, so that he could speak those words over Bruce Hanlon and over every person hearing this message. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But for the cross, we don't. But as we look to Jesus, we see our Savior, our Redeemer, one who calls us friend, one who has paved the way for us with his own body. Thank you for what you've done for us on that cross. May we never, may we never lose the sense of awe and wonder as we remember what Jesus has done for us, the heart of the gospel, which is the cross of Jesus. It's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.